If the shoe fits, if the snake bites, if I'm feeling sad. Huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I simply remember my favorite things. Going to the hospital and attacking people. <laughs> Demerol, Demerol, Demerol. Sarah Marshall is the host of the podcasts You're Wrong About and You Are Good, as well as my partner in deeply obscure research on my favorite website of all time, newspapers.com. Sponsor us. Today I'm telling Sarah the story that I uncovered of the very first Munchausen patient in the United States, an alleged professional wrestler called the Indiana Cyclone, who blew through hospitals across the country from the 1950s to the 1970s, leaving a bizarre kind of terror in his wake. Now called factitious disorder imposed on self, those with Munchausen syndrome seek attention, monetary gain, or sympathy by pretending they are sick, or even making themselves sick to achieve those aims. So buckle up for this bizarre and wild ride across the country as we follow a kind of American folk anti-hero who has all but disappeared from public consciousness. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Always an absolute joy of my life to have you here. How are you doing? Oh my God, I'm doing wonderful. I'm eating this horrible little protein yogurt, <laughs> and I'm so happy to be in the Chelsea zone, where anything can happen. Well, babe, you're going to need as much protein as you can get to get through this story, <laughs> <God>. all right? <laughs> I'm going to need to strengthen my frail body. Yep, and your frail mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I Chelsea, I feel, you know, you know, it's a story that feels relevant is that we went to Disneyland for my birthday last year. It was the best. It truly was. I would love to just be boring and do it again. Yeah. And I was also on some mushrooms. And I remember, I don't know, just this experience that really stands out from the whole day where we were on Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and you were driving <laughs> and I was tripping and you were like doing your best to, you know, pilot the car to safety. But we did die. And then we ended up in hell and then the ride ended. So we are dead and in hell. And so nothing bad can happen to us and in hell. Wow, that makes so much sense. <laughs> it's politically, it really, <laughs> really does um, for both sides. But we're the ones who are right about it. And I, I feel like the story is going to be like that ride where it's we're going to go through some really awful terrain and there's not really maybe there's hope at the end. I can't imagine that it's not going to be harrowing, though. But I really trust you to drive our tiny little car that's on rails. And, you know, it's it's harrowing, but it, it's also like just weird and yeah. kind of fun and kind of involves like what I'm calling an American folk anti-hero mm. so that sounds fun right i think that's great and i i wonder have you seen the sarah paulson movie run yes i have yeah i feel like she's our our folk anti-hero embodiment definitely yeah and in that movie 
the kind of central plot is Munchausen by proxy, correct? Mm-hmm. Actually known in the DSM as factitious disorder imposed on another. Mm, oh my God. I know. So I wanted to just investigate something related to this because, of course, Gypsy Rose Blanchard is out of prison and she, for those who are living under a rock, was the subject of a documentary about eight years ago by Aaron Lee Carr, who's one of my favorite documentarians Mm -hmm. called Mommy Dead and Dearest. Mm -hmm. And the story is that Gypsy Rose was held hostage for basically her entire life by a mother who was trying to convince everyone that she was very, very sick and had some profound disabilities as well as physical problems that, you know, required surgeries. And it all turned out to be this disorder, factitious disorder imposed on another. And eventually she ended up finding the ability to meet Men. She did what we all do when we, you know, when we're in a bind, which is to find an online boyfriend in Wisconsin. Yeah, exactly. And get him to murder our mom because that's what ended up happening. And to which America collectively looked, I I feel, and said, you got to do what you got to do. I mean, that's kind of the wild part of this is that Gypsy Rose is now out of prison and we have fully what I like to call yassified her. Yeah, which is a bit much. Let's not do that. Let's leave her alone. Yeah, it's a bit much. And um, not to say that I don't find her totally charming and that I don't understand what happened. My concern more is this way that we tend to create these mega celebrities for like a month and then find some reason to absolutely cannibalize them and destroy their lives yet again. So I'm just hoping that we like this kind of dies down and she can live her life with her new seemingly adorable husband that she met in prison. So anyway, that's we're not really talking about that today at all. But I wanted to just explain why this has been on my mind and the collective American mind. And uh, Sarah, were you familiar with that story as it was kind of unfolding? Oh, my God. Yeah, completely. And I remember when this this first was in the news, it it wasn't a huge story immediately, but it was definitely a national story. And it was a story people were following. And I think it provided, you know, even from the beginning before the, the full story came out, like enough really shocking details because the mother and daughter had shared a Facebook account. Yes. Which was updated, I believe, by the boyfriend after the murders and, you know, you can look it up if you want to. But it was like from the beginning in the most you know, kind of cynical old time newspaper man perspective, a great story and a horrible story. Yeah. And I was very engaged with it. And it feels like these stories come up in, in the news for sure. And I don't know where we would fit into this or if this is a different phenomenon, you know, women who kill a bunch of their babies in a row. Mm-hmm. But this felt like the biggest kind of collective processing of this actually not incredibly rare problem. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're not talking about Munchausen by proxy today. We're going to talk about Munchausen syndrome, mm. factitious disorder imposed on the self. And 
this started to become known or noticed by doctors starting in 1951. And this guy named Dr. Richard Asher in the UK just started to notice that individuals were doing things like fabricating their histories and sort of faking symptoms of illness. And he decided that the appropriate name for this should come from this kind of a folk hero, just at least like a very big character in the folklore of Germany, a guy named Baron Munchausen, who was fictionalized in a lot of ways as this like great liar who told these outrageous stories and entertained everybody at the pub. (laughs) And those stories were eventually turned into books, you know, written by another kind of hoaxer pretending to be him, you know, so it's like this (laughs) very ridiculous yarn of a story. And, you know, he got a lot of shit from the medical industry over the years for like such a facetious way to name a new disorder. He was like, what? I was having fun. I like reading. I just wanted to have fun with it. Doctors do have possibly too much fun, but that's a whole other episode. Yeah. (laughs) Please calm down. Please focus, everyone. (laughs) Please work fewer hours and have less fun with naming things. No, have fun with the naming things. Uh, You know, it it is. Yeah, it's it's cool. But work less. That's (laughs) what I think doctors should do. This is not for individuals, but more for the institutions. Respect your nurses. Oh, my God. Oh, and (laughs) also never ask a doctor to take your blood because you think they're going to do a better job than a nurse or anything else. Doctors don't know how to do those things. Moving on. <laughs> what a sweeping statement you've made on this show. My mom was a doctor. I'm allowed to. And she, okay. she's not dead. She just retired and makes pottery now. <laughs> I have lots of doctors who are my friends. And I'm sure they would all respond positively to, to that <laughs> statement. I was trying to do like, I have lots of doctor friends, so I can say that. Uh, uh, some of my best friends are doctors. That's what I was trying to get yeah. at right there. <laughs> so today we're going to come back to the United States and focus on the very first case of Munchausen Ooh. diagnosed or at least assumed in the United States. Okay, amazing. Okay, so... In 1957, this doctor named Dr. John S. Chapman, M.D. Do you need the M.D. if you say doctor? I don't know. Maybe it's like a double negative and you're implying he's not a doctor. (laughs) And you lose your credentials. Yeah. So, yeah, in 1957, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, he wrote an article called Peregrinating problem patients, Munchausen syndrome. And I'm like, nice alliteration. Mm -hmm. Everybody's having fun with it. This word, I didn't know what this word meant. Uh, And it means sort of like a person who just travels around willy nilly. Oh, peregrination. Yeah. Did you know that word? Well, I knew it in a kind of because I loved the My Side of the Mountain books when I was a kid and like the secondary lead of those books is a peregrine falcon so I was like very into peregrine falcons as a kid and read about them and I mean I didn't learn that much but one of the first things you learn is that their name means like traveling falcon that's nice yeah so it's a nice name yeah my peregrinations that's what you can do for your Oscar Wilde impression oh perfect okay so 
The main thing this article did was detail this new concept of Munchausen, and Mm. he he did it by essentially writing this long-ass warning letter to doctors across the country to say, there is this con artist who is traveling all across the country, even to Japan, even to Canada, at least by his own admission, to have hospital stays, to get Demerol, to take advantage of different hospitals, doctors and nurses, and Mm. to do so in quite a belligerent manner. So he wanted to warn everybody about this man named Leo Lamphere. And what's really interesting about this story is, you know, I'm on newspapers.com. I'm typing in the word Munchausen. I'm clicking the button that says oldest articles and going through that and then kind of comparing what I'm finding about this Leo Lamphere guy to Google thinking, oh, there's got to be like a Vice article about this or something. (laughs) And uh, just nothing. So I feel like I am bringing you an original tale that has not yet been told, at least in a way that I can find. Incredible. Which is like so thrilling to me, just deeply, deeply thrilling. It's like we're going into a part of the cave that you discovered, but there's only the tiniest chance that a huge rock is going to crush us. There was this tunnel that I used to go into when I lived in Virginia, this old abandoned train tunnel that was Mm -hmm. collapsed at one end. And the tail went that if you crawled through this tiny hole at the end, which I never did, which I regret, that there were, uh, I guess I would call them animals with albinism that were (laughs) living there because it was so dark and they'd been there for so many years that they turned white, which I don't think is true. don't think that that's how nature works. I think it takes much longer. No, but maybe they all bleached their hair, you know, because they were watching Laguna Beach in there. Because they were fleeing from a murder charge? Yeah. (laughs) There you go. Um, Well, anyway, we're going through this hole. There was Gollum in there. If you've gone far enough, you would have found a ring and, you know, answered a riddle and stuff. Sarah, you know I don't like fantasy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) It's all right. Just don't bring that shit on the show. (laughs) Sorry, everybody. So (laughs) this man, Leo, would show up to hospitals and burst through the front doors of each (laughs) ER and he would be like clutching his chest and then he would just start spitting up blood like all (laughs) over the front of his work shirt that he was wearing. Someone's got a theater degree from Brigham Young. Uh, Yep. (laughs) I don't know why I decided that's where he went. (laughs) It's also funny that because to me this I know that people are individuals etc but typically When men have a cold, they act like they're going to die. And when they literally fire a nail into their heart, they like very calmly drive themselves to the hospital and walk in and try not to make a fuss about it. So I love that this guy is like being as dramatic as possible, which, you know, feels I'm not saying I would find this suspect. I would. It's just interesting (laughs) that he thinks this is how an injured person would behave. I agree. I agree. More. After this, you ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress free with 
Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And now, back to the show. So... Once they checked him in, they would notice that he had really red legs that were like really hot. And then they would see that he had, you know, kind of like a thrombosis thing going on in his veins. What is thrombosis? It's like related to blood clots and your oh. veins kind of like, I'm not a doctor. I'm sure that all of our doctors who we previously insulted are <laughs> angry about us. But the nurses who we were nice to are like, it's okay. Yeah. Hey, why should you know? You're just a lowly podcaster. You're just the lowest form of Earth on the planet. It's okay that you don't know, little podcasters. Exactly. Amoebas on fleas. And then why would I want to be anything other than the lowest? <laughs> you can only move up from there. <laughs> so... <laughs> After he was kind of taken in, stabilized, and of course, given a healthy dose of Demerol. And for mm. those who don't know what Demerol is, it's morphine adjacent, let's say. Mm. It's not morphine, mm -hmm. but it's very similar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then he would kind of calm down and seem pretty happy, as, as one does. And then he would kind of start telling nurses and doctors who he was. And this included that he was formerly a merchant seaman, a bosun's mate, and a ship carpenter. But most importantly, he was a part-time professional wrestler mm. named the Indiana Cyclone. What? That's so great. Isn't that so good? Yes. However, I could find no evidence that the Indiana Cyclone ever existed. But, oh my God. You know, it doesn't mean that he didn't exist. He was probably on the smaller circuit. Right. So, you know, HBO Max, take note. Take note. Give Kelsey a budget and we can drive around Indiana looking for evidence of the Indiana Cyclone in like old trunks and stuff and then raiding vegetarian chili. Perfect. I would give up everything that I have to do that right now. Right. All right. So the story that Dr. Chapman is telling in his medical paper, remember, this is uh, about 1954. He's giving one example of the behavior that this man exhibited 
but then applied to the fact that he did this kind of again and again and again. The other thing about him is that he, in every article, it's very like well noted that he is a big dude clocking in at 6'3 and at 260 pounds. So when this man is like bursting in like, (laughs) you know, it's not a sight that they're seeing very often. And he does appear to be in a great deal of pain. He's a good actor. So as soon as he's on Demerol and chilling out, they say, you know, this looks like you need to have a surgery where we essentially tie off a blood vessel or another tube or put a thread or wire on your vein. I tried to understand. I don't. All of that sounds bad. I don't want any of that to happen. And so he was then immediately like, absolutely fucking not. You are not cutting me open. Just give me more Demerol. Mm. Right? He just kept being like, more, 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 um, which is a vibe, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it, and it's interesting. I'm interested in when we get to the point, and it feels like this is going to be a theme through all of this, where, you know, the question of how do we differentiate Munchausen's from just like regular old all-American drug seeking. <laughs> yes. And that is like a question that I kind of had throughout this process, too. Mm. So at this point, that is kind of what it seems like, right? Because if they were late by a minute with his Demerol, he would just start complaining and kind of like throwing a fit. Like he was a big old giant baby, like literally <laughs> a huge gigantic baby. And uh He would, as Dr. Chapman put it, I like this quote, his sulkish, childish, difficult behavior moved one resident to describe him alliteratively as obese, obtuse, obstinate, obstreperous and obscene. So a lot of alliteration in this episode so far. (laughs) That this is like, again, to like to speak to the difference between doctors and nurses. And I love doctors. I like grew up among them, but I am going to keep roasting them for that reason. It is like no nurse is sitting around thinking of five words that start with the same two letters to describe a patient. You know what I mean? No, they're like, I've been working for 80 hours. (laughs) So tired. Uh, I just started watching Nurse Jackie last night. Loved Nurse Jackie when it was first on. ah, It's so good. Yeah. I watched all of Weeds and I was like, clearly the next, like the next step. Totally. And it was also... A time in America when to have a prestige show with a female lead, she had to have some kind of massive secret. Yeah. And it had to be like usually a drug secret. (laughs) And I'm not exaggerating. It was like that secret diary of a call girl, which might not be prestige to you, but it was to me at that time. (laughs) United States of Terra. United States of Terra. Yeah. And I feel Mm -hmm. like Weeds was like the beginning of that. And then after Weeds, they were like, people will watch a hot woman do stuff, but only if she's got a secret. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Okay, so when he would show up, doctors would start to get suspicious or confused or just kind of like, what's going on? Because he had so many of what looked like giant surgical scars And to which he casually said, shark attack. Shark attack. Well, sort of a shark attack. (laughs) One of them was he said that back in 1940, his appendix was removed while he was aboard a tugboat in Belfast by what he called an unskilled seaman. 
So that sounds bad. You know, what's funny is that I I think I can still see someone today having a, a party story about having their appendix removed in a tugboat in Belfast. Yeah. And they were like hippie flipping. Yeah. Molly acid. <laughs> yes, exactly. It was like they were at the festival. Things took a turn, you know. And then the next day they were up and about at the Titanic Museum. I feel like this is like a really good urban legend that we should start. Yes. <laughs> Instead of the kidney heist, it's the appendix removal on the tugboat in Belfast after the EDM party. (laughs) But it's just like a kindly local takes pity on you and does some surgery because they know you're an American and it'll cost $90,000. So it's like a nice urban legend. It's really a cautionary tale about... Yeah, it's it's an urban legend about foreigners wanting to help us. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, because they know how desperate we are. Uh, Okay, so another one of his surgery scars came from an apparent umbilical hernia that was repaired in Chicago. He had a vein stripping, which sounds horrible, vein stripping surgery in 1944. He had scars on his back from an apparent kidney removal that was performed in Japan. He had a giant scar on his abdomen from an apparent auto accident in San Francisco. And then the reason that he was in the ER with this horrible leg problem is that he said that he tripped over a mop in a movie theater. (laughs) So he, like, would tell the staff that he was in the middle of a lawsuit against this movie theater and whoever treated him good was going to get their payday later from this mop related accident lawsuit. And you're like, (laughs) whatever, dude, I just bring you jello. Yeah, please stop talking. I'm a candy striper. (laughs) (laughs) He would also sometimes claim that this issue he was having with his legs was because he had shrapnel in them from the Korean War. Um, But that was only when he wanted access to VA hospitals because he was not a veteran. So Mm. tisk, tisk, tisk. He also liked to unsurprisingly sort of rant and rave about his fantastical history that included my favorite story of his time on ships when he was a bosun's assistant or whatever I said, and he was in a position of leadership and anyone who challenged his leadership was apparently allowed to arm themselves with a marlin spike while he fought back with just his bare fists to prove his authority. And this is like an initiative he set up. He was like, listen, everybody, (laughs) this is how we're going to deal with conflict. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It seems like it. It seemed systematic. I'm kind of... (laughs) That story is making me picture this guy as Frank Costanza. (laughs) Great. Perfect. I think that's not an unfair assessment if you jacked him up a little bit and (laughs) made him a wrestler. (laughs) Frank in his younger years. (laughs) Okay. So, you know, doctors would start testing on him because, you know, he's coughing up blood and he keeps doing this at random intervals. And it seems like pretty much when he wants something and he's not getting attention, he's suddenly like, and more blood, you know, he spits up more blood. He's like, get me an iced tea. And they're like, in a minute. And he's like, Bleh. exactly. Like, truly, that's truly what it was like, especially if he wanted his Demerol. He was coughing up blood. Mm. So mm. they wanted to figure out what was going on 
why he was coughing up blood, but every time they tried to perform tests, he would start to threaten everyone with physical harm. Like, don't do a test on me or I'm going to beat your ass, essentially. And, you know, that was really suspicious for everyone because they were like, you're in a hospital (laughs) and you're coughing up blood a lot. So you might want to get, you know, this checked out. So he would stay there and his legs would kind of start to improve. And then he would just start doing super weird stuff like he would many articles use the term stalk like he would stalk the halls just walking around you know because sometimes he would stay in these hospitals for like 40 days and every time he got really mad at someone he would like be like I'm checking myself out of this hospital and then he'd just walk out in his gown but right as he reached the doors he'd just be like blood, and then they'd be like no come back you have to come back and he'd be like okay I'll come back, which is the most (laughs) aggravating behavior I can think of. But it was very true that he just he thought that he should be getting the entire hospital's undivided attention at all times. Mm. And if he didn't, you know, he would go and like burst into doctors offices or offices of, you know, people that were supposed to be treating him in some way and just start screaming at them and threatening them and calling them names and coughing up blood. I want to know where this blood is all coming from. That's what I'm most excited about. Well, that is the great question because he, you know, as mentioned, would just be wailing like a ghost, like a fucking ghost wearing chains just up and down the hallways because he wasn't getting what he wanted. And then the staff eventually found in the bathroom that he usually used like some hidden hypodermic needles Hmm. and they made the assumption that perhaps since they had actually checked him for any like lesions in his mouth in his throat he always claimed that his lung had a lesion on it and that's why he kept spitting up blood they couldn't find anything there was just like no cuts on his body at this point they're like checking because they think that he's making it up like they don't have the language to say you know, what they called people at this point were instead of, you know, Munchausen, it was a hospital bum. God, that's amazing. And it's like you're like, yeah, I used to be a beach bum and then I was a ski bum and now I'm a hospital bum. <laughs> because I did those things too much. The first two. So yeah. now I have to be a hospital bum. Aww. Shark attack. Um, <laughs> so they made this kind of assumption that he might be poking himself with these needles Hmm. and then drawing blood and hiding it in his mouth (laughs) because he often promptly coughed up blood when walking out of this bathroom. That was like a common occurrence. And if you ask him what time it is, he's like, yes, yeah, (laughs) pretty much, pretty much constantly. He's like, I don't want to tell you what time it is. I know, I know. So they confronted him. Are the, you know, did you put these needles here? He's like, no, of course not. You know, and probably like flipped a table or something. He's like, can't you see I'm very weak? Yeah, exactly. I'm in pain. (laughs) So eventually, like, as he's being confronted with this stuff, as people are getting suspicious, you know, he like jumps up from his hospital bed and like rips his medical records off the chart rack. And then he just like rips them up and runs into the bathroom and flushes them down the toilet. Wow. 
And did that yeah. work? Did it not like clog? I don't have the answers to that, but I'm guessing 1950s plumbing might not have been able to take a medical chart. I'm not sure. I, I guess it depends how thorough it was. I Wow. This guy is like... I just appreciate that there's no subtlety to any of this behavior at all, you know? Nope, it's big. <laughs> he's big, he's loud, he's, yeah. you know, he's got tall tales to tell. <laughs> so <laughs> they basically regarded him there as a psychopath, which we know is like a very popular term in the 50s as it was sort of becoming a thing, I guess. It was becoming a diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. We could do a whole episode on psychopaths at some point, but at this point, it's a diagnosis that, you know, has has never been in the DSM. Not that it's so great to be in the DSM. Homosexuality used to be in there. Famously. But at this point, I think has expanded to refer to anyone who ghosts me. Um, so I don't know how much value it is to us at this point, but that's a that's another conversation I hope to have with you in the future. Which we should have. We should certainly have. Maybe a narcissism one, too, might be good. Yes. Yeah. Because I think these are like very related phenomena. And it's like to me, there's something very interesting about what seems like a very kind of American cultural thing for us that like we need to give someone a diagnosis often in order to feel like we can acknowledge our own trauma as a result of their behavior. Yeah. And like if they aren't a narcissist or a psychopath and they still abused us, then like that wouldn't be as bad. And like it is as bad. You know, We don't have to give people diagnoses in order to feel like something horrible happened to us. But I also I see people needing that. And I, I find that really interesting. Um, and then, of course, there's so much else to it. Yeah. Just needing an explanation. Yeah. Yeah, just something beyond, like, that person is evil. Needing something to exonerate you. Yeah. Totally, totally. More after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. And now, back to the show. So they tried to commit him. He was from out of state, so they couldn't do it. So instead, all of the nurses and staff got together and, you know, collected a bunch of dimes in a hat or whatever and <laughs> got him taxi fare to the Iowa City bus depot where he had a ticket to, you know, finally leave town, finally leave. You know, he had been terrorizing this hospital for like a month. Uh. And instead, <laughs> they find him a couple days later. They learn he's just been drinking whiskey in a hotel room for two days and they find him sitting on the ground. It's really cold out. So they're like, 
And oh, and he says he couldn't get on the bus because he was coughing up blood and they were like, you can't come on the bus. Um, (laughs) So they were like, we can't leave you out here. You know, I mean, which is good. Uh, So we will take you back. Please behave yourself. And for a couple days he did. He was doing okay, But then he just flipped out. (laughs) in the hospital and he flipped over a cart that had a bunch of metal water pitchers on Mm. it which you can imagine was quite loud and quite disruptive and then this is really like scary he then ran into another room and grabbed a pair of scissors and like slashed a wound in his leg so then he's like you know walking up and down the halls now actually bleeding right and then as he's doing this he grabs a chair and just starts swinging it around like a wrestler would in a ring just at everybody and he just keeps screaming look what you made me do look what you made me do so again you know uh not behavior that is very typical of a hospital so you know people are starting to be like okay something is seriously going on here so they look in his wallet when he's asleep and they start to i don't know if that's illegal but they start to like find all these cards from all these different you know all these cards that have doctor's phone numbers like so Mm. many cards from hospitals from nurses whatever and they are like, okay, we're going to write to all these places. You know, they didn't have some computer system where they could email or, you know, look at charts or whatever. So they had to write these letters to all these different hospitals that were like all over the country. This whole story has been an ad for Oracle. Yeah, right. Exactly. Why don't we have a system that works nationally? That's another question. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way. And there, yeah, there still isn't. We're basically still writing letters across the country hoping to get one back before it's too late. Yeah. Well, it, it is. I realize there are reasons for this and even some good ones, but it's it is insane to me that you have to have insurance tied to where you live. Ah, you know, I know. Yeah, that's a whole other thing that that is. So they sutured him up. They restrained him. He got a psychiatric evaluation. They said that he was a psychopathic personality with overtones of paranoid schizophrenia, Hmm. which does not sound right to me. Does that sound right to you? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know where not that I know anything about diagnosing someone with schizophrenia, but it doesn't I don't really understand where that connects with the story. He mostly, you know, he seems like a mean addict to me. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, that's what he seems like to me as well. So and again, I want to make clear that this was just the first time that Munchausen was mm-hmm. written about and put out into American popular culture through newspapers and medical journals. I'm not saying that he is like a definitive case. I don't mm-hmm. know that. But like this is the case that America was learning about as this diagnosis was coming into popular imagination. Yeah. Well, and I think it it actually, to me, is a positive trait of the diagnosis that it doesn't become modeled so specifically on one person. Because if you look at MPD and Sybil, you see how if you have a diagnosis of a syndrome modeled specifically on one individual, then like that will lead to sort of imitative behavior across the board rather than something being capacious enough to respond to different presentations. Right. And that's why it's hard to like create a diagnosis 
with so little information. Yeah. Right. So they're modeling it after, you know, a handful of people. And in America, they're modeling it basically only after this guy. Hmm. So they suture him up. They send him to a mental hospital. Finally, they're able to get him in there somehow. He wanted Demerol. They wouldn't give it to him. He ripped out his stitches and, you know, they sutured him up. They continued to refuse to give him Demerol. And what was interesting was that he did not exhibit any physical withdrawal symptoms from Demerol. That's so odd. I know. They thought he was psychologically addicted, which is still a like really powerful kind of addiction. But I think it kind of threw into question this idea that he was just a psychopathic drug addict um, and that there was something else hmm. going on. He wasn't addicted to the drugs. He was addicted to the attention. Basically, yeah. Basically, <laughs> yeah. So at this point, he just escapes, right? He just pieces out of the mental hospital. He's gone. And that's when the doctors at the hospital he was at before started getting responses back from those letters they sent out. Oh, God. Well, he's out sightseeing at the bridges of Madison County. Yeah, just uh, being fine. And so they get messages from doctors as well as insurance companies. And they learned that he had been collecting claims from these insurance companies as far back as 1943. And again, we're in 1954 right now. So more than a decade, he's been doing this insurance fraud across the country in California, Louisiana, New Jersey, Kentucky. And those are just the ones that wrote back, right? Wow. Well, he's really seeing the country. So that's nice. (laughs) Oh, and this is only the beginning of him seeing the country. So. (laughs) Yeah. So he has injuries. You know, he would claim that he had injuries to his hands or legs and he would get these payouts. And they also learned from the doctors that responded that he had spent time in the last just like year and a half or two years that he had spent time in hospitals in Albany, Cleveland, like four different ones in California, several in Montana and South Dakota and Utah. So he's getting around. He's a hitchhiker. Most Hmm. people say he takes buses, but really nobody knows. But he he gets around and every time at all these hospitals they were kind of trying to do this same surgery that I mentioned that was like tying off his vein and every time he refused Hmm. and eventually at one hospital they oh they finally were like okay we're gonna operate on you dude like if you are having this issue that you say you are that we seem to see which is an interesting part is because they looked at his legs and he had issues in his legs that would cause pain but every time they tried to do the surgery he would flip out but at this particular hospital they got him on the operating table they got him a spinal anesthetic which you you know inject into your spine right Mm. and then just as they're about to put him under he jumps up uh, this is what it says in the article he leapt from the table gathered the surgical drapes around him like a toga and <gasps> marched out of the operating room dripping spinal fluid from no! the needle which was still in place oh my god and just screaming at everybody the whole time like accusing them of all kinds of you know horrible things because that's what he would do for trying to give him medical attention yeah exactly exactly Ugh. wow he 
sometimes would like conceal pins and scissors and razor blades so that he could threaten doctors and nurses whenever he got mad. And then he kind of do the same thing where he would self injure in some way um, so that he could stay at the hospital longer. This is leading me to questions that I don't know any of the answers to about like, what do you have to do to get kicked out of a hospital? I know. He would also often contact local ministers like after he was like the hospital kicked him out and they would he'd get money from the churches and he'd kind of move to the next town with his stories of his woes. And after that article comes out, this 1957 article by Dr. Chapman, that's when people start to become aware <laughs> of who Leo Lamphere is. Like mm. he's now someone who they're looking out for a little bit more. Of course, he still get it's like it's still just a obscure medical journal article, but if this was the internet, that would go pretty viral, I imagine. Mm-hmm. So oh my it, god, yeah. Probably went 1957 viral. So there started to be a lot of articles written about him. The first kind of big ones that reached the public were titled The Indiana Cyclone, and they were in the um, Evening Sun in Baltimore. So it was a three-part, like three-day big article that kind of basically gave the same information that Dr. Chapman gave that I just read to you Mm -hmm. in more detail. So it's like, you know, this is when he starts to become known to Americans and that this disorder starts to come into popular consciousness. The same year, Time Magazine writes a huge article about Leo. Oh. Yeah. So they explain what Munchausen syndrome is. They explain based on this singular case, what this disorder entails and like what to look for for doctors and nurses and the general public. And I feel like, you know, for any Gen Z listeners out there, it feels hard to remember. And it was much less true, Chelsea, even when you and I were growing up, although a lot more true than it is now. But like if something was in Time magazine in mid-century America, Everybody heard about it. Yeah. Like it was the magazine of record for the country in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. He also had a spread in Life magazine that sadly I could not find. Usually I can find them in like the archives. Yeah. Uh, I could find the Time one, but I couldn't find the Life one. But he was also had a huge spread in uh, Coronet magazine in 1958. So these are like rapid fire coming out. Like he is the Gypsy Rose of the moment, right? Like everything is about this guy. You're like a mini Starkweather. And why do you think that America like... Because, like, it's a great story. It's really interesting. But why do you think this was so big? I have a, I think it's a great question. I think it's just, I think we love, like, a guy who gets away with it. Like, we like, you know, people who steal planes and and don't get caught. We just like there's something about that that we enjoy. Totally. And why wouldn't we, I guess? So there are like, you know, there's these gaps kind of in his history because I'm only going off of newspaper articles because there's literally no other history that I can find after 1957. So he finally gets arrested in September of 1961 for faking a heart condition to get drugs. Mm. And he spends 30 days in a workhouse. Oh. 
So then he shows up in Michigan in 1961 after his arrest under the headline famed hospital imposter strikes here, skips town. So now the articles are like he's like descending on the town. So he's like Jesse James or something. Exactly. He's exactly like that's what I mean is he's like this folk antihero that's just crisscrossing the country at this point. Um, And every time he shows up, bursts through the hospital doors, covered in blood and just being like, oh, my chest. And then, you know, spits up blood and gets his Demerol. And they're like, Norm! (laughs) He just comes in. I feel like it's a very like uh, Seinfeld entrance. Yeah. <laughs> the Mackinac peaches, Jerry. The Mackinac peaches. It's a pig man, Jerry. It's a pig man. <laughs> so, so at each hospital, they'd be like, this guy's suspicious. And oftentimes they'd be like, I think I know who this is. And then they'd be like, <laughs> look in the hospital records and they'd see that he'd already been there a year before or two years before. Like oh, he's, he's gotten he's lazy. Just, he goes back to the same hospitals. And these are like dozens, if not hundreds of hospitals across the country during his like God. 30 year reign, at least 30 year reign. Medical care used to be so much more affordable, apparently. No, he doesn't pay his bills. That's the other important thing. Oh, okay, nice. Good. Okay. Yeah. By the end of this, he owes probably hundreds of thousands of dollars in like 1960s money. And God. if you like calculate that, it's it's in the millions. He uh, owes yeah. in the millions. Okay. And often he would say like, that mop money's coming in from that lawsuit. Oh my God, <laughs> Get that the mop, mop money, money and I'm going to pay you. Always with the mop money. <laughs> I know, always with the mop money. So, you know, he continues to be arrested. He can and spend, a, you know, 30 days here, 30 days there. Um, oh, and then, okay. So once he shows up in... In a hospital in Minneapolis, Minnesota, he does his shtick, but then it turns out that the doctor assigned to him is Dr. Chapman, who wrote the expose in the American Medical Journal. What? And they're both like, you know, they like have a cartoon moment where they're like, oh, no. And, uh, you know, he immediately disappears. Oh, my God. It's like heat. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah, it's That's I so mean it's, it's it's just such a good story. And then 2 months later, this is in April of 1963, he shows up in several hospitals in Philadelphia, but he keeps getting recognized. It's like the jig is kind of up a little bit because he's just it's gotten around, just like it would on TikTok, right? It's like it just it's gotten around. Everybody kind of knows who he is, but for some reason, he keeps using his real name. I like how this guy is incredibly non-sneaky. No, he's not. Cuz it feels like you could do the same thing like if it's for Demerol, you can be chill about it and like things will probably go better for you if you just want Demerol, right? Yes. I mean, this is like this is a lifestyle at this point. It is. So he heads to the Northeast. Articles place him in Connecticut, in Massachusetts. Everywhere he goes, it seems like each different hospital has a theory about how he's able to produce this blood. Because that's still the question is nobody like people have these theories like that hypodermic needle thing could have been true, but they couldn't find like the punctures that should be there for him to have actually done that. Hmm. This doctor in Connecticut says 
quote, it's my feeling that he punctures a superficial variscosity in his leg, bleeds into his hand and ingests the blood. The area in his left groin appeared to be the site of the puncture. Okay, so that might be what he does. He might puncture his leg in some way and keep the blood in his mouth again. But this doesn't ingest the blood. So I don't know if they're implying that he like actually swallows it and then spits back up. But again, these are just like hmm. theories that people have. And he keeps fleeing, keeps disappearing, keeps showing up, keeps bursting through ER doors. And then it just seems like, you know, around 1963, the articles about him drop off a lot. They're like, there's a war in Southeast Asia. We're busy. Or he starts using a different name finally. Oh, very clever. I'm so glad mm-hmm. he finally figured that one out. Do you think he likes being recognized? It's a great question. It's a really good question. We'll hear from him in a minute. Like we do have some quotes from him in a minute, but the article that I found that had his name in it but was not about him, it came out of Michigan in 1964 and it said snake bite patient resembles note bilker, which I believe is like <laughs> one who does not pay their <laughs> pay their hospital bills. Yeah, like a Sergeant Bilko. <laughs> exactly. So I'm gonna read just a little part of this article. This guy named Harry Shoemaker shows up to this hospital and he's saying that he has a really bad snake bite that he needs treatment for. He claimed at the hospital that he was fishing and a rattlesnake jumped out of a tree in Arizona and bit him right on the leg as he was launching his boat. This guy has the worst luck. (laughs) I know. Can you believe it? But remember, this is not Leo. This is Harry. Oh, okay, okay. But then when police showed up, he starts changing his story and says that the snake bite happened in Florida and then started changing the subject when police were like, you know, Harry, rattlesnakes can't climb trees. (laughs) (laughs) That's why they always tell you to climb a tree when a rattlesnake is chasing you. (laughs) Exactly. So at the hospital, several people are like, that's fucking Leo Lamphere. I know that giant wrestler anywhere, right? And so (laughs) he's there complaining about his snake bite, saying he's been to so many hospitals and they won't treat his snake bite. They just won't do it for some reason. And then, of course, he's like, get me my Demerol. And he just kind of continues this new charade of being a snakebite victim. And of course, we don't know for sure. It was never proven that this was Leo. But, mm, but you know, if the shoe fits, if the rattlesnake bites, you can be certain. <laughs> if the shoe fits, if the snake bites, if I'm feeling sad. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I simply remember my favorite things. Going to the hospital and attacking people. (laughs) Demerol, Demerol, Demerol. So this appears to be his new grift throughout, you know, the mid-1960s because there's just not a lot about him. He's a snakebite kid. Exactly, yeah. Again, like a very folk anti-hero, folk hero story. A fantastical animal injury, right? So then he starts going by his name again for whatever reason. He's He probably runs out Harry Shoemaker and uh, he just, instead of making up a new alias, he's lazy. He's like, I'm the Indiana Cyclone again and uh, <laughs> I'm ready to spit blood. So he 
eventually is arrested again. The only reason this particular arrest was of note was that he had been at three hospitals. They had kind of been able to get in touch with each other and be like, is this happening to you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the cops came and arrested him and he was sentenced to the correction farm. God. Which is the only thing it was called in the article, just the correction farm, which is very, very menacing to me. Mm. And so in the article, for the first time, he speaks hmm. and he is actually interviewed. Leo speaks. Leo speaks. So I'm going to read you a little bit of what he says in this article. He says, I just go to hospitals when I need treatment, but news arrives and they won't let me get in. Every time I get in a hospital, somebody recognizes me because of the articles and I have to leave. I've been running for more than 15 years all across the country looking for help. Mm. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Later in the article, he says, do you want to know why I cough blood? Yes, we do want to know why. (laughs) (laughs) The doctors don't know. I'm smarter than they are. There is a cavity on my lung which hemorrhages. I tell the truth, but they don't believe me. Then he clarified, I didn't say I coughed blood. Mm -hmm. They claim I play sick, but I don't. Let's put it this way. Sometimes I have faked because I had to have treatment for my legs. So after he was sentenced during the sentencing, he stated, I've been on drugs. And it's like, we know. (laughs) And then at that hearing, he asked to be sent to Lexington, Kentucky, to a hospital for addicts. And he said, I want to get well once and for all. But then again, the doctors are like, he's not addicted to drugs Physically, only psychologically. So Hmm. then that's when he gets sentenced to the correction farm. But he did, you know, he did make statements basically saying he's not faking, which is not surprising. Mm -hmm. Then eventually he's he keeps going. He's not done. He in 1967, he's arrested again. But he's like, I'll just leave town. And they're like, just leave town. Please just leave town. (laughs) At this point, he's able to, they say, produce an irregular heartbeat and pulse. And... That seems wild, right? But let me tell you this, Sarah. Mm. (laughs) Flash to New Orleans in 2018. I'm there with my mother and my brother, my dad, and we're on a ghost tour. And the ghost tour is led by this man who did the tour dressed like a vampire. He had a whole shtick. He actually was in interview with the vampire for like a hot second. And that's like his whole, you know, life's work. And (laughs) he, you know, top hat, fangs, like actual all the time fangs, long nails, all that stuff. And he needed a (laughs) person from the audience to feel his pulse because he said that he could stop his pulse. Right. So I was like, me, 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 pick me. (laughs) And, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to feel that pulse. I'm going to feel it. He's a liar, a vampire (laughs) liar. Uh, And so, you know, he had me place my hand upon his wan arm. Little vampire wrist. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And sure enough, I felt his pulse stop. And I was like, okay, God. that was freaky, right? So, of course, as soon as it was over, I like walked to the back of the ghost tour and Googled it. 
because mm-hmm. I'm such a like yeah. I'm such a debunker. I believe in <laughs> science. And what I believe he did is you can place a tennis ball under your armpit. Huh? And if you press down on it, you can actually feel your pulse slow and what? you can stop. And of course it doesn't stop, but for whatever reason it stops the like beating sensation in your arm. Is it because you're cutting off circulation to your arm? It might be. I can't remember now because it was a long time ago. Yeah, I have no fucking clue how this works, but if I were forced to guess, which I guess someone imaginary is forcing me, I would say that like you're getting less circulation and therefore your blood is like less audible. That would make sense. But please, one of the many medical professionals we've been dragging this whole time, please let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't said anything about CNAs yet. They should be paid more. We all know that. We all know that. So eventually, like people not only are like, he struck our hospital, but they're actually like articles like this one in the Arizona Daily Star. The headline is hospitals shudder as leo nears so they're like (laughs) tracking his movement that sounds like an article about a hurricane in south florida (laughs) it's true it sounds exactly like that (laughs) (laughs) so they're actually yeah they're actually like tracking his movements across the country now and so it's getting increasingly harder and they're starting to call him leo the lion like l-y Lion, like yeah, he's lying. Leo Lizer. I could see him thinking that they were calling him Leo the Lion as like a cool wrestling compliment, but <laughs> they were not. Hmm. By 1971, I mean, he's like again, like there are these years where there's just not really any articles about him, which leads me to believe that he's probably using an alias. I don't think he stopped this at any point, right? So he's making his way finally the last like trace of this man is in 1971 and he's finally made it to the glorious i know that's not true the slightly more glorious healthcare system of the great white north canada you know i mean i i know that things are bad but it's it's got to be better than down here yep and that is it that's the very last that anyone heard <gasps> of Leo Lamphier. What happened to Leo? Did he assimilate? Did he become a Canadian? Uh, We don't know. I mean, he might have. Found a nice French Canadian lady to take care of him. And when she's like, oh, I'm sorry, we're we're out of rye toast. He goes, blah. Yeah. (laughs) Give me my rye toast. (laughs) So eventually, one of the like later write ups about Leo includes the, you know, appropriate for the time psychoanalysis of like, why is he doing this? What's going on? So I'm just going to read you from this article. Mm -hmm. Doctors listen with particular interest to Leo's tales about his childhood, hoping to find some clue there to his strange behavior. He seems to have had a rather troubled boyhood in Waterton. His father, a laborer, evidently spent little time at home, and his mother, judging from Leo's accounts, did not lavish on him the tender, loving care she gave her other children. Leo was not a particularly bad boy, but he seems to have been pretty thoroughly unwanted. 
Once, he fell out of a tree, and his mother gave him attention when it was assumed that he had broken his leg. He was carried to the office of a doctor who pronounced his leg unbroken, however. Leo admits that he exaggerated his description of this mishap to his playmates, and it may well be that he took great pleasure in his mother's unexpectedly warm reaction. Similar episodes have been contributing factors in his malady. So, you know, that's... uh. Uh, it makes some sense, right? That if you are feeling unwanted and you're feeling like you don't get attention, you're feeling completely unloved, and the one time you truly feel this warmth and attention and love from your mother, mm-hmm. you might internalize that and feel like that's the way that you can get what you're missing. But you don't have kind of the knowledge that that's exactly what you're doing at the time, right? Yeah. You know, and without being too much of a Freudian about it, I think you don't have to say that that's the direct cause of something without saying, yeah, that probably had something to do with it. Yeah, exactly. And also, this is why kinks are so important, because then you can explore your emotional baggage in a sexual arena and not, you know... (laughs) By terrorizing hospitals for 30 years. Make an entire hospital miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think it's I think it's a story that has, still has a lot of mystery. You know, like they still don't know how he coughed up blood. Hmm. They still saw that his legs had issues. I mean, he wasn't entirely making up everything that was going on. But when it came to treatment, he always refused it. And that, you know, I guess there's a world in which that's because he's scared of the surgery. He just wants to prolong it with Demerol so that he, you know, can go on without doing what frightens him so much. But, you know, when you take into consideration everything else, you know, that story starts to feel like uh, far too generous. And they never were able to find a reason that he coughed up blood and they they tried. And, you know, they only had Mm. these theories about pricking himself, holding blood in his mouth. It's very odd. And it, it just seems like the fact that the blood came at the perfect moments when he wanted something or needed attention or, you know, was getting in trouble mm-hmm. in some way uh, or, you know, wanted a nice tea. It just adds up to something really suspicious. Yeah, right. Like, I, it feels like I feel comfortable saying I think there was a scam there without knowing exactly how it worked. Blood coughing wise. (laughs) Yeah, right. And I mean, like, again, being empathetic or whatever, um, like, could it have been, you know, because a lot of times he would leave and then kind of realize how fucking cold it was outside. Like he Mm -hmm. would just realize it's so cold outside and I'm homeless Mm -hmm. and I don't have anywhere to go. And the warm place I go is the hospital because that's like one of the only free places you can go that also happens to have Mm -hmm. a drug that he really enjoys and, Mm -hmm. you know, people who will care for him and kind of allow him to act out his worst impulses because it's a hospital. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like there's not really Mm -hmm. a lot of discipline that you can achieve at a hospital unless I'm I'm wrong about that especially going out of state you know they they couldn't really send him to get institutionalized that often it was just mm-hmm. kind of like I don't know I mean that's my most charitable kind of perspective on it is like it's a scam but it doesn't seem like this like completely evil 
you know, nothing's completely evil, but you know what I mean? It doesn't seem like this scam that has absolutely no basis in like a necessity. Yeah. And I feel like I wonder if like scam becomes syndrome in some cases at the point where the thing you're scamming people out of is like a weird non-fungible resource that most people wouldn't want. Yeah, yeah. And what's that resource? I don't know, just like attention, but not even positive attention. Just like holding these people captive and like screaming at them all the time, but also like being so frustrated with the kind of treatment they give you, but also refusing to ever leave. Like it just feels so, it feels so dysfunctional. You know, if I were a competent scammer, I would, I would get something better than that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, when we think of factitious disorder imposed on self, it's like, it is a really serious disorder that is, you know, very, very real. And I don't know if this person is the right poster child for it. But again, you got to start somewhere, I guess. And with Munchausen, we started with this article by Dr. Chapman that that revealed to America that this was a thing. And, you know, eventually there would be kind of others who were doing the same type of thing. And it was easier to understand what might be going on and doctors began to look out for this more and more so it just became harder and harder but of course then as we talked about kind of in the beginning when we move into the 70s we move into the idea that you can make someone else sick for money and attention Mm. and then that just is a topic we can cover another day maybe oh yeah i would i would love that it's very complicated but again it's that thing of these are our first examples of something that we're trying to identify as a syndrome or trying to identify in a pattern. And, uh, you know, the first examples of that are often going to be uh, sensational because you have to notice it. Right. right? You have to. It, it's like so big that they were like, OK, this is something. <laughs> this is not just an addiction to Demerol. This is a new kind of pathology Maybe this isn't the perfect example of that pathology, but now we have a jumping off point. And then, you know, that's when things get really murky and, you know, it just takes a long time for doctors and researchers to get a grip on something that includes many different kinds of people. Yeah. Well, and that I feel like in any discipline, our impulse towards certainty is what gets us in real trouble. Right. And then, of course, we get the story of Gypsy Rose Blanchard and her mom, Dee Dee. And that, again, is Mm -hmm. like this gigantic example of something that really did put this into the popular imagination. I mean, we had some versions of this in, say, Stephen King's It, right? Eddie's mom is convincing him he's sick. Oh, yeah. And and even Misery, I think, is is really about this dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. And so we had some versions of this mainly fictionalized. But then when we get this story, it feels similar to Leo, not in content, but in its grandiosity. And it's just this huge example that is so outrageous and and unbelievable in a way that, you know, that's now our popular imagining of what Munchausen by proxy is. Yeah. And I think that that anything that manifests on a giant scale, like the Gypsy Rose Blanchard story, I think those stories almost always represent one end of a very wide spectrum and that something like, you know, 
Eddie Kasprak is like, it's never going to be on the news, but that stuff happens. Exactly. As well. It also, just you mentioning Eddie, maybe go on this little, like, I got emotional just like thinking about Eddie Kasprak for a second. And I was like, man, like the thing about it that I didn't realize until, and I didn't like read it with my eyeballs. I listened to the wonderful audiobook read by Stephen Weber. That's like 57 hours long, but you know, before it, which I, did, I had never read until like three years ago, I didn't understand that it's like, it almost feels like the Lord of the Rings. Like, I think Stephen King wanted the stand to be his Lord of the Rings, but like, I don't like most of the characters in the stand. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are just like, like, who likes Larry Underwood? <laughs> almost no one. <laughs> like, when I'm at my worst, I'm like, well, Sarah, this is a real Larry Underwood type of experience we're having today. <laughs> but like, all the characters in it, like, are so... Like, I think about them like they're people that I know, you know, they're great archetypes. I mean, I mean, that's his opus, right? Yeah. Mr. King's opus. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of great stuff in his oeuvre, but I feel like The Stand was like a young writer deciding to write an epic and then doing that. And I and I love The Stand, but I only love the first half uh, for right. the most part. And it is like feels like an idea that actually just had to be that big. I did. I agree. I, I agree. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on this kind of wild cross-country international adventure of this very strange folk antihero that ended up really defining an early syndrome and then completely disappearing from popular consciousness. It's, uh, yeah. it's really wild. I have never heard of this guy before today, and I love that you you found him for us and we got to learn about his uh, escapades. I hope he found peace in the end. I hope that everybody who took care of him eventually stopped having cold sweats about it. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah I, Kelsey, I'm so it's just makes me so happy to be here. I'm just like so been smiling a lot this whole conversation <laughs> You're just you're so wonderful. And the show is the happiest place in town. Yeah, that is so nice. The happiest <laughs> podcast in urban legend. And <laughs> well, there is no one that I would rather tell this story to, Sarah. It was, it's it's you. It's you. It's always been you. It's always been you. <laughs> oh, and we're going to kiss outside of your new husband's house. And then I'll walk away into the snow. And then Colin Firth will marry that woman he's never spoken to. What a treat. <laughs> yeah. And we're going to do a show at San Francisco Sketchfest soon. You're, you're going to be my guest on a live episode of You're Wrong About, and we're going to talk about alligators in the sewers. Oh, couldn't be more excited. Which I think is possibly where Leo ended up. <laughs> you never know. I mean, you never know. And then also, uh, I'll be a guest for the same I think it's the next day at Sketchfest uh, mm -hmm. for You Are Good. And we are talking about Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. And so we, we just spent like several minutes quoting Forrest Gump to each other yesterday. So it's going to be a lot of that. <laughs> yep. It's uh, Mama, what's vacation mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's going to be good. Yeah. And so that's going to be February 2nd, February 3rd, San Francisco Sketchfest. Don't ask me to say all the details. Just look it up. The internet is available to Google you. Google it. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to, I, yeah, I'm so excited to talk. God, we're talking about gators and Forrest Gump. I think we've been really influenced by our 
our time in New Orleans earlier this year. Yeah, you're right. We've been gator pilled. Wow. I didn't even think about that. What a theme. What a theme. Thank you, Sarah. See you soon. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. This was American Hysteria. If you want to get more of our show, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You'll get ad-free episodes as well as bonus content, like the talk show that I do with producer Miranda called Hysteria Home Companion, where we give you a look behind the scenes, tell you stories that weren't included in the episodes, give our thoughts and feelings usually hidden from view, and give you insight into what is coming up. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria or subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Our Folk Devils United Scapegoats Against Scapegoating merch is finally shipping out. So just head to AmericanHysteria.com and pick yours up today. While you're there, you can also leave us a message on our Urban Legends hotline about a tale that you remember from growing up. You might hear your voice on the podcast, and you might get the most in-depth investigation that you could ever imagine. You'll find it all at AmericanHysteria.com. This episode was edited and produced by Miranda Zickler, with music direction by Riley Swedelius-Smith. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I hope you have a great week.